Be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Chronicles. The book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 7. For those of you that have been here uh, for a long while now, this will be something of a milestone. Uh, For those of you that have not been here for a while, or for those of you that are perhaps visiting for the first time today, I will explain to you what that milestone is, uh, so that way you will be on the same page as it were with the rest of us. Over uh, the last year or so, we have been seeking uh, to see the big picture of the story of God's redemption throughout the scriptures. And part of the way that we decided to do that was to go uh, book by book through the Bible in chronological order. So what we did, we began obviously with the book of Genesis, and we looked at the entirety of the book of Genesis, the core themes that run through Genesis, uh, all in one sermon. And we did that, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all the way through up until now, we come to the very last book uh, that we're looking at in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles. Now, that doesn't mean that we just ended at Second Chronicles. Second, uh, first and Second Chronicles were the two books that we did last after looking at the other um, uh, all the other books because they come last in the Hebrew Bible. They were two, one of the, actually one book, First and Chronicles was originally one book, and it was one of the last books written uh, in the Old Testament age, the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's looking back at all God had done from Adam up through even this exile that they've just came out of, seeking to give them encouragement and hope that they are still God's People And for those of you that have persevered through all of my sermons so far, 30, this will be 39, yeah, let me encourage you, you are still God's people as well, okay? Uh, you, you, have, you have survived this thing, and next week we will begin looking at the New Testament with the book of Matthew. But again, we just want to remind ourselves of where we're at. Again, the people of God, you remember, sinned persistently. Uh, they, they did not let up in their sin, their rebellion against God. They specifically chose to worship not just the Lord, but other gods as well, forsaking uh, the redemption that they had from Egypt, the covenant promises, forsaking the law and the relationship they had with the one true God to worship other things. And eventually, uh, as God promised He would do, He sent them into exile. But now, in great mercy, He has brought some of them back from exile to be His people again. And last week when we looked at 1 Chronicles, we saw God, uh, or rather the chronicler, holding up God as the one to whom the people should have confidence, that they should have hope because of who God was and the fact that though they had been faithless, He would continue to be faithful to His promises. And we, we, we unite both that and this morning's message as we finish out the book of Chronicles by emphasizing and acknowledging that the chronicler wants the people of God to know that they have hope not in God because they somehow can be more faithful to Him, but because He is a God who shows mercy to sinners. They are feeling cut off. They are feeling as if they are not the people of God. And yet what the chronicler wants to do is point them back to God and say, the way back to a solid relationship with God, the way back to feeling like as well as being the people of God the way you should does not come by performing all of the right religious duties. It does not come by performing all of the right acts of sacrifice. Those things are important. But rather, the way back to God is by trusting that He is a God of mercy who will gladly receive sinners who come to Him. 
So this is the, what we want to see this morning from Second Chronicles chapter 7. Let me just set the stage for you a little bit in case you did not uh, read Second Chronicles this week. Just previous to this, Solomon, at the beginning of the book, uh, Solomon is, is enthroned as king after his father David has passed away. And now um, he is fulfilling the task that his father David longed to do and set before Solomon to do when he knew he could not do it. And that is build God a temple. Uh, Solomon has spent years uh, facilitating and organizing the building of what is arguably one of the most magnificent buildings uh, the world has ever seen, although we ourselves have not been given the privilege of seeing that uh, since it has been destroyed long ago. Nevertheless, it was a glorious building meant to gather together Israel to worship their God. And it's just about complete. They are about to dedicate it. And so Solomon organizes the offering of lavish sacrifices and joyous worship to God. Solomon himself prays to God and, said, and says, God, just as you have been honored to dwell among your people in this tabernacle, in this tent, and you have made your presence known there, you have filled it with your glory, so now look upon this house, this temple with the same affection. Make your presence known here. Receive the sacrifices offered here. Fill this place here with your glory. And in answer to Solomon's prayer, uh, in a unique display, uh, only seen a few other times, God in fact sends fire from heaven to consume the offering that was made there and so fills the temple with His glory that not even the priests can enter at first. Such a display moved the people all the more to worship God. And we read that King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Even as temple priests blasted trumps and the people sang praise to God. And after a week of uh, feasting, the people gathered together for a day of prayer and fasting before the Lord. And it's then that we arrive at our passage this morning. Verse 11 of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens, so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. May God bless the reading of His Word. This passage plays a key role in the book of Chronicles, ultimately showing why Israel must trust in God's mercy, both in order to be reconciled to God and also to feel reconciled to God. In the same way, though the externals have changed, the underlying ways in which God works has not changed. And so the same message that they would have heard back then is important to us today because if we are to go, if we are to be right with God, perhaps for the first time, perhaps finding forgiveness from God for the first time, or if we who are already forgiven by God in Christ need to have our relationship renewed with Him because we have strayed into sin, then what we will find ourselves is ultimately following the same path that Israel was called to take 
a path that, that begins by trusting in God's mercy toward sinners. We want to see this in three ways this morning. Uh, really, uh, three movements that highlight uh, God's relationship with His people and the fact that it is rooted solely in the mercy that God provides them. First, we want to see this, the relationship that is based on God's mercy. The relationship that is based on God's mercy. Again, this appearance of, of God to Solomon, which we are told uh, uh, in the book of Kings, specifically came in, in, a, in a vision dream, comes in response to Solomon's completion of the temple. And last week we talked a little bit about how the temple came about, but we couldn't dwell on it too much. Uh, and so I said we would, we would talk more about that here, and it actually fits better in this message, because what we see is that the, both the giving and the consecrating, the building and the acceptance of the temple of God is in fact all of mercy coming from God's own hand. David himself who had experienced grace in um, being set aside, anointed as king over Israel, uh, he set out one day as God had given him rest from all of his enemies and he is standing in his palace and he is looking out over Jerusalem and suddenly he, he, he is thinking about this tabernacle that God dwells in, this tent that has been carted around uh, for 500 years since the time of the Exodus. And he's, he's kind of looking back and he's looking at this big palace he's standing in and he's thinking to, this, to the tabernacle and he says, this isn't right. This is fundamentally wrong for though I am a human king over Israel, he is the king, not just over Israel, but over all things. And so he calls the prophet to himself and he says, look, I want to build God a temple. I want to build him a permanent house in, order to, in which to dwell for, for the Ark of the Covenant and his presence to dwell. What do you think? The prophet said, Sounds good to me. Whatever's in your heart, go for it. But that night, God comes to the prophet and says, no, just because you think it's right doesn't mean I think it's right. And he says, this is what you need to tell David. I appreciate the thought, but who's asking? Did I ask you to build a temple for me? The time is not right and you're not the person to do it. Nevertheless, though you will not build a house for me, David, I will build a house for you. Well, he didn't mean another palace. What he meant was a dynasty, a royal family to rule over Israel. In fact, God, not just with Israel, but with David, entered into a covenant promise with David and said, for as long as there is a king in Israel, he will be a Davidic king. In fact, you will have a son and I will establish his throne forever. And David was just taken aback by the grace that God displayed to him in that moment. And yet... And yet it was not long before David walked headlong into sin. Though it was not forbidden to take census of the people, the, God had laid out very specific laws and, and regulations in doing it, and yet David ignored them all. The prophet came to David and said, you should not do this thing. And yet David pressed ahead and he numbered the people. He took a census ultimately to see how big his army was. Now again, this is the same David who prayed and acknowledged that in every victory in battle he had, it was God who gave him the victory. It was God's power working through those people and through him that ensured their success. Nevertheless, he fell into the trap of thinking along worldly lines. How big is my army? How large, how large is the number of my fighting men? And despite, despite God's faithfulness, he sinned in this way, trusting more in both his own prideful heart as well as the fighting force of Israel. 
All this became a huge failure in the eyes of God, so much so that the prophet was sent to tell God punishment would come upon the nation because of this. In fact, God said, you were told not to do it, you did it anyway, okay, fine, you made the wrong choice, let's see if you can make the right choice. I will let you decide the punishment that I send upon Israel. God said this to the prophet, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. David's, you can imagine, not happy to have to make this decision as to how the nation will be punished for his sin. In fact, he says, I am in great distress what do I decide? None of these things. There's no right option here. He says, nevertheless, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So that is exactly what happened. God honored that request, and for three days, the angel of the Lord went through ravaging the land, killing many of the men that David himself had even numbered just previous to this. And as the angel of the Lord is about to uh, enter into Jerusalem and unleash destruction, God stops the angel and says, it is enough. The punishment is enough. But David didn't know that. Instead, he looks out the palace and what he sees is the angel of the Lord, sword unsheathed, ready for destruction, hovering over the city. And David begins to plead with God. And his, plead is this, his plea is this, they didn't sin, God, I sinned. Do whatever you will to me, but spare my people. Spare ultimately your people, Israel. And so word came to David that he needed to go out in response to this prayer, God said, go, go to where you see the angel stopped. Go to where you see the destruction and the punishment halted. Go there and offer a sacrifice of atonement to me. And so David goes out and it turns out it's on the farm of a man named Ornon. And in Ornon, you see this angel of the Lord has halted right in the midst of his threshing floor where they would have separated the wheat from the chaff. And David goes in and of course, uh, it's actually, it's, it's a little humorous in the midst of all this uh, intensity because it says as soon as Ornon and his son saw the angel, they fled, they went and hid. And they, they knew, we don't want to have anything to do with this. And yet when David comes, they kind of sneak back out and, and give him, you know, uh, the, the honor that is due the king, uh, all due deference to him. And yet one eye is over their shoulder looking at this angel. And David says, look, let me buy, let me buy this area of your land. And, and the, the, the guy is like, just take it. It's yours. Whatever you want. Just, you know, just take it. And he's like, no, no, no. He goes, I cannot take it. I will pay for you the full price because I will not offer to the Lord that which does not cost me something. And so he sells him the land, David offers the sacrifice, and symbolic, literally, uh, the, the angel sheaths its sword, symbolizing the end of God's punishment, mercy upon David and the people of Israel. Now you say, what in the world does that have to do with the temple? That's a great story, it's interesting, it's fascinating, we're glad for God. But what does that have to do with the temple? It has to do with this, because David remembered the mercy of the Lord there. To him and to the people, he said, this will be the place where God's house shall be built. On this very threshing floor, this is where we will put the Ark of the Covenant. And around that, the most holy place. And around that, the holy place. And around that, all of the vestibule and all of the basins and all of the altars. This will be the place of the temple of God because this is where God showed us mercy.
So Solomon did just that. He took the field that David had bought and he put down there. He put down there the temple of God. And you'll notice God, in response to David's prayer again, he, or Solomon's prayer, he appears to him and says, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Originally the tabernacle and now the temple was the very heart of Israel's relationship to God. It was after all the place where day after day, year after year, blood was offered on an altar as a sacrifice to God. Why? As a display of God's mercy towards His people. They deserve death. The moment they sinned, they deserved the fullness of the holiness of God to break out upon them and wipe them out as a people. And yet in His mercy, God said, instead of that, you come and offer the sacrifice with a contrite heart and I will accept it. It was God's mercy that saved Israel from Egypt in the first place. It was His mercy that chose David as sinner to be king and stay king. It was mercy that stayed God's hand of judgment. And it was mercy that allowed this temple to be acceptable to God as a meeting place between Him and His people. From first to last, what you need to see, not just with Israel, but Israel as a paradigm for all peoples anywhere, and that is this, from first to last, your relationship with God is based solely on His mercy. It's not based on what we do or goodness in our hearts. It is based on God's loving kindness towards sinners. And it makes it so sad then to see the second thing that we must point out is the sin that rejects God's mercy. The sin that rejects God's mercy. God has said that He would accept the temple that was constructed for Him. He didn't have to accept the temple, but He did. He chose to dwell there among His people. But then notice... Even with his presence among them, he anticipates trouble. He says, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. The very next verse, when I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Now he's just accepted the temple and he's telling Solomon, I'm accepting the temple. I will be here. I will dwell in your midst. I will honor your reign just as I did David. And yet... Judgment will come, he says. He doesn't say if. We might even expect that. If. If I shut up the heavens. He says when. He knows a day will come and it's going to happen. Judgment is going to come upon God's people one day because of their sin. This is why God would shut up the heavens, bringing drought and pestilence upon the, upon the people of His name because of their sin. Now, what makes that shocking, at least it should be, is again, God isn't talking to just anybody. He's not just talking to, to, to some group out there that says, you know, yeah, you're going to sin and I'm going to judge you. He's talking to His covenant people. Again, the same people that 500 years ago He has redeemed out of Egypt simply by His mercy. They have, re, they have repeatedly, repeatedly experienced His mercy all throughout their wilderness wanderings. At the very Mount of Sinai before that when they're receiving the law and they're already off into sin. And here God says, though I'm accepting this temple and I'm dwelling there, my people will still sin. And when they do, like a parent disciplining his child, so God will discipline his people. And part of the, this discipline comes through his outward cursing of the land. So why does he do that? Well, it's an answer to this question. How do you get an entire nation who's forgotten God to remember God? How do you get an entire people 
to remember once again what their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers taught them about who God is and what their relationship should be. The answer is you turn off the water, you dry up the crops, and you send insects to devour whatever is left. That will get a people's attention. Now, that may not get our attention. I mean, today, um, we're not as agrarian as they are. If our little garden in the back is not doing very well, if our grass is starting to look brown, what do we do? We turn on the hose, right? And water comes. It doesn't have to rain for us to get water. In fact, sometimes we pay more for water in a little plastic bottle than we pay for gas in our car. Water is just everywhere, right? And we enjoy it. But for them, that's not the way it was. It was very much like some of the third world countries you see today, very much among the people group that we will go to next February uh, in, in West Africa. If it doesn't rain, there are no crops. There's no grass up for the, the cattle to eat on. If there's no rain, there's no life at the end of the day in an agrarian society. And so God is doing this not to terminate their life, but to get the attention of their life. And again, the point I want to make in, in heightening this fact that these people will sin is that we understand this sin is a rejection of God's mercy. Too often we don't, we don't think like that. Perhaps you've never thought about sin like that. But if not, I want you to see it that way today. Sin is more than just rule breaking. It is that. But it's more than that. It's more than just doing something wrong. It's about it's about doing something that is a personal affront to another person, the ultimate person, God. Think about it like this. Ask yourself, which is worse? Suppose, suppose you were a thief, okay? And you, you were working on your house, perhaps a deck, some project, whatever it is, and instead of paying for the building materials, you decided to go to a construction site and steal them. Not a good thing, right? Somebody else has paid for the materials. But now let's suppose the same scenario, but instead of going to a construction site, you go to a friend's house who is working on a deck. Same, virtually the same project. And you bust in, maybe even with a gun, and make him haul his materials into your car and then leave. And maybe on the way out you give him a little chop on the head. Now which is worse in your mind? Well, surely the second one, right? I mean, it's, it, it, it's personal at that point. A friendship has been broken. It's, it's an in-your-face kind of crime. The other, we just say things like, ah, they'll write it off. You know, ah, it's too bad, but no big deal. And, but, but this is personal. Well, we need to understand every sin is personal. Whether or not you're actually cursing God when you sin, it is an offense to Him. It's a slight to Him. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's you trying to, to, to lift up your tiny little fist and give Him a bonk in the head on the way out. That's what sin is Towards God, every sin is personal, whether you realize it or not. It is, an, it is an open rejection of the mercy God has already showed you and continues to offer to us. And it's been that way from the very beginning. The first book of the Bible explains that human beings were first made to worship and serve God and to rule over the earth that He had created. But they ultimately refused that role. Paul explains in Romans, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. They were made for a purpose. They were made to, to live in relationship with God, to worship and serve and love Him even as He loved them. And they said, no. And instead of entering into a relationship with God, they entered into a relationship with other things, created things instead of the Creator. Pastor Tim Keller explains it like this. Instead of living for God, 
we began to live for ourselves or our work or for material goods. We reversed the original intended order. Sin, not only, sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a good thing, more than on God. Making an idol out of something means giving it the love you should be giving your creator and sustainer. You see, when we grasp that, sin becomes all the more ugly. Because it's not just doing what we want to do. It's rejecting relationship with God. In His mercy, God had called the people of Israel into relationship with Himself. He had given them life, leadership, and land. He had given them law upon which they would know exactly how to live, what, and what's best for them, and what's pleasing to Him. He even gave them salvation from their enemies, though they hadn't earned this privilege or deserved any of it. And instead of gratefully serving and loving God, they chose to reject that mercy and love and serve other things. Now, when you think about that, you know, it's one thing if I have a friend who betrays me. That's, that's painful, but who am I, right? I mean, I'm, no, I'm nobody special, okay? Some of you are shaking your heads. Don't shake them so hard, okay? Uh, uh, but seriously, I'm nobody. But, but to do that against God... The person who literally made us from the dust, who, who we only have life because He has granted it to us this morning. Last night in my sleep, He could have said, I'm done and over. Yeah, He chose to give me life again. And yet every time I sin, I'm saying, yeah, yeah, who cares, God? I'm tired of you. I don't want to love you. I don't want to live for you. I don't want to serve you. I want to go and do my own thing. I would rather love my pocketbook more than you. I would rather love my family more than you. I would rather love myself more than you. Now, again, you, you betray me, say that to me, it's not such a big deal. I do it to the creator and sustainer and king of the universe. What do you deserve? To be returned to the dust from which you came, like that. And yet God did not do that with Israel. He showed mercy to them, and He shows mercy in the same way to us today. This is the last thing that we see, the forgiveness that reveals God's mercy. The forgiveness that reveals God's mercy. God says, when I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God says, even when you sin, even when you turn your back on the relationship, there is a way back. The bridge is never burned. The book is never finished. The case is never closed because God is a God of mercy. And He shows mercy even towards sinners. As long as we have breath, because God is merciful, we can return to Him. And He tells us how. He says four things. First, his people are to humble themselves. This involves subduing our pride and submitting ourselves to the Lord and His will, not ours. Second, he says God's people are to pray. And in this context, the prayer is one of confession. They're acknowledging before God they've sinned against Him. Then, specifically as they pray, God's people are also to seek God's face. That is, they are specifically to seek after His mercy and grace. They're not just admitting, I've done something wrong. They're specifically actively seeking God's acceptance of them. Finally, the sinning people are to turn from their wicked ways. This is simply the Old Testament word for repentance, to turn from your wickedness. That is to say, they're not just saying, um, I want my sin and I want you too, God. 
No, God's over there and the sin is over here. And what they're doing is dropping the sin, they're leaving it, and they're turning around and walking towards God in faith. They're they're, they're leaving the old behind and pursuing the new. If there's no turning, ultimately there's no repentance. If, If you don't desire to leave the sin behind and be done with it, then you're not genuine in seeking after God. Now, now as we we hear these things, we shouldn't get hung up on the specifics. We shouldn't think that we can come to God remembering to humble ourselves, seeking His face, turning from sins, and yet ultimately find ourselves rejected because we've actually forgotten to open our mouths and pray. That's not not the way it works. It's It's not a mechanical, mechanistic thing. Rather, what God is getting at is the attitude of the heart of the person going to Him. Think about it like this. Have you ever had to apologize for your apology? Have you ever had to apologize for your apology? You've, you've offended someone and they've said, hey, you know, what you did or what you said, you know, that's, that, that hurt me or whatever. And you're like, okay, okay, I'm sorry. And you're eager to get on to the next thing. What happens? Apology not accepted, right? I mean, you, 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 if you're really going to apologize, you have to mean it. You have to be sincere in it. Otherwise, what it means is, number one, you really don't think you did anything bad worth apologizing for, or B, you don't care that you did something bad. You don't care that you hurt the person's feelings or, 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 or left them in the lurch at work or whatever it is. And God says it's the same way with Him. You don't just, you don't just go through the, the formal list. You don't just say, well, I, I humbled myself. Yeah, I said I was sorry and I did this and I, I won't go. No, 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 no. It's the heart attitude that He's getting at here. And he's saying, this is what it looks like when you come to me for mercy. This is the attitude of your heart. You're taking it seriously. You're recognizing you are at fault. You've broken the relationship. You've defiled what should be there. You've spurned the very person you most desperately need more than anything else. Therefore, to make things right, you come not with a chip on your shoulder, expecting that God do something for you, feeling like you're entitled for him to forgive you, but rather you stump, you come humbly, displaying real regret for, for what you've done, seeking to leave behind your sin, wanting God's mercy. And if that's the kind of heart that goes before God, then God says he will be merciful to that person. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. God says if we come in genuine repentance, he says, I will hear your prayer. If you're seeking me, you will find me. And when you find me, what you will find is a God who is willing to forgive sin. A God who will remember his covenant promises that I've made and heal your land, restoring crops and protecting you from your enemies. Now this this is so central to not just the covenant people of God, not just today, but to the specific book of 2 Chronicles because that's how the rest of the book runs. It's this pattern. You have wicked kings who forget God, serve other gods or themselves, and take Israel down the hole into sin, and, you, and God raises up another king who says, what are we doing? Well, we got to turn back to God. And so they, they, you see this emphasis. Sometimes it's one thing, sometimes it's all of the things. So you see Rehoboam humbling himself before God in chapter 12. That's the exact words. And thus being spared by God from the invading Egyptians. In chapter 32, we see Hezekiah uh, very intentionally praying with a repentant and contrite heart before the Lord, moving God to spare Israel from the invading Assyrians. In chapter 20, it's Jehoshaphat who leads the people of Judah to seek after God in reforming the nation. And this he, he learned just following the example of his father Asa, who we read about in chapter 15, who, who tried to turn away the people from idolatry to the one true and living God. Over and over and over again, the way back is the way 
to God. The way back is the way specifically to God, not to what we have done, but looking to Him and what He offers to do for us, the mercy that He holds out to us. Again and again and again, the people fall away, and again and again and again, God is always merciful to His people. When they genuinely seek forgiveness, He gives it to them. And even today, this is how sinners are to make things right between them and a holy God. God's people are renewed in their relationship with Him when they sin by going to God in this way. How can we be sure today that God will do the same thing that He did for Israel? Simply this, He's already proven it by giving us His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen to this. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, on the cross, Jesus hung in the place of sinners, bearing God's wrath against their sin. The curse that we deserve, the judgment we earn, the retribution that should be ours for our offensiveness to God fell on Jesus instead. Thus, the Bible says the way to God is not by trusting in our work. It's not by trusting in coming to church and saying the right prayers and reading the Bible. The way to God is by trusting in the mercy He promises through the death of Christ for sinners. We don't seek to make things right. Rather, we receive and accept and embrace what God has already done through His Son to make things right. This past week, I was talking with someone about John Newton. You may know who he is. Uh, he's the writer of one of the most famous hymns, Amazing Grace. He was one of the, the persons in the historical film of the same name that came out uh, a couple years ago. Listen to his testimony. It was the 18th century and Newton was born a young boy into a Christian. Obviously, he was born as a young boy, not just an old boy. But he was born as a, as a, uh, into a Christian home. For the first six years of his life, he heard the truths of the gospel and he was loved by his parents. But that life did not last because his parents died. Everything changed when he went to live with some relatives who abused him and mistreated him and worst of all, openly ridiculed him for his associations with the Christian religion. Newton eventually fled that home and joined the English Royal Navy. In the, in the Navy, his life got even worse. He became known as a brawler and was whipped many times for his offenses. He eventually deserted the Royal Navy and fled to Africa where he worked for a Portuguese slave trader. Newton's life reached its lowest point when he saw himself sometimes having to survive on the ship by eating slop off the, the cargo hold floor to stay alive. He eventually left that ship to become first mate on another slave trader vessel. One night he broke into the ship's stores on that vessel, helped himself to more whiskey than he should have, and drank himself until he fell overboard. He was close to drowning when one of the men on the ship harpooned him and hauled him back aboard. When it seemed his life couldn't get much worse, all of which he deserved for his debauched life, God's mercy came to him. It was in the midst of a storm off the coast of Scotland as he was pumping bilge out of the boat, hoping they wouldn't sink, that God began to bring to his mind scriptures he had memorized as a child. Several passages came to mind that reminded him of the love of Christ for sinners. And God used these things to drive him to repentance and faith in Christ. Friends, God didn't just forgive Newton, though. He redeemed him. 
because he went from being a, a slave trader to one who was a Christian pastor who was able to serve the church for years and years and years, discipling such great men of England like William Wilberforce. And the legacy that is left behind, even as we sing songs like Amazing Grace today, is not that Newton was such a great man, but that he was saved by such a great God. On his tombstone is written this, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich, Mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Christian brother and sister, are you estranged from God this morning because of your sin? Have you begun to walk away from God, loving and serving other things? Then, like Newton, you must look to Christ and trust in the mercy that God offers you through Him. Humbly repent and God promises to renew your relationship. Friends, you may be here and you may never have turned to God. You may be living your life in idolatry, worshiping your family, your job, or even yourself. The solution is the same for you. Look to Christ and trust in His mercy, the mercy that God offers to you through Him. Humbly repent and God promises to forgive your sins now and forever, establishing with you a right relationship with himself. Wherever you are this morning, wherever you are with God, look to Christ and trust in the mercy that God offers through him. Father, as we think about the great mercy that you have shown to your people for many generations, God, we are humbled by it and we stand amazed. And yet, God, very often we need to continually come and seek that mercy. For Father, even as your people, we far too often emulate Israel and succumb to sin, loving other things more than we love you. God, we do pray that you would forgive us of those things, that you would remind us of the great mercy you offer in Christ, and that, Father, we would humbly come before you to receive it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.